Is it going to Wait, I think that's me. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Welcome to the Cine Skinny. The second I hit the record button and he got a text, <laughs> things are going well. Um, yes, welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny Magazine. Uh, everyone's back from various places. It's me, Peter, with Anahi, Lewis, and Jamie. All say hi at once to make it really hard for people to tell who's talking. Hello. Hi. Good job. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we've got that kind of energy today. <laughs> I'm swaying back and forth in a swivel chair. Everyone's You're very ha- Bond villain. I mean, Thank nothing you. else about you but the swiveling. You need a white cat. I need a You'd be doing it. Different clothes. Yeah, change out of the swimming shorts. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Blofeld, you could always see his legs. So yeah. <laughs> you're, you're Blofeld on holiday. Are those like, actually swimming shorts? Yeah. You're wearing swimming shorts? Yeah. He's always ready to, to dive in. No, I'm not going swimming. I'm just, they're just nice. I mean, the irony, <laughs> the irony, started raining, the yeah. irony is Peter can't swim. That's, That's the irony. Oh. You can't swim? I can't swim. I also can't really swim. I also think like I probably could not swim. I took swimming lessons when me I was a kid too. and I've just not gotten back in the water since. Yeah, me too. And yeah. they say that like you never forget, but I think actually you do forget because yeah. sometimes in, I'm in the water and I feel like I'm drowning. My plan is just to never swim. Yeah. I By the way, welcome to this film podcast. <laughs> so, so, so we're never going to do like a pirate radio style oh or fr- fr- from the high seas <laughs> uh, version of the We the could, century. but the boat cannot sink. The boat has to Well, sink. I'm a lifeguard, so I, so I could save. You're I could, a lifeguard. I used to be, yeah. So out of the four of us, you're the only one. You're like compensating. <laughs> you can yeah. swim for all of us. Of us you can drag us yeah. all to shore. Three of us can't swim, but the one of us who can is qualified I mean, to help people who cannot swim. So... <laughs> I mean, I feel it's the metaphor of this podcast. I'm just dragging you to the shore. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping you afloat. You know. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Unfortunately, today we are not on the high seas. We are at EHFM in Summerhall. Uh, so yeah, thanks to Jamie and EHFM for having us. You can listen to EHFM live online at ehfm.live. Uh, and if you go to mixcloud.com slash EHFM, you can get a full archive of all their shows. Lovely lads, good shows, fun radio, excellent times. Not on the water, but you can't win them all. <laughs> um, so today we are talking the, the new Wes Anderson. We're going to talk about a Annie Ernaux documentary. You probably call it like kind of documentary film essay type thingy. Yeah. Uh, and we're also going to talk about folk horror because it is Midsummer tomorrow. We're on the eve of the longest day of the year. Yesterday when this comes out. Or Yesterday when this comes out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But tomorrow when we're recording. This feels like it could be another massive digression. Who's been watching anything? <laughs> Lewis, what have you been watching recently? I started my Pride Month off right. I, I watched a, a Pride hit, a certain camp cult film from 1975, directed by a queer person, celebrates B-movies, science fiction. You know the one. It's Death Race 2000. <laughs> um, if you don't know... Had us in the first half, <laughs> not gonna lie. I mean, it's funny because... It's the kind of film that Rocky Horror is parodying, even though it came out the same year. Uh, If you don't know, it's set in the distant dystopian future of 2000, uh, where there's been a societal collapse and America is now controlled by this totalitarian dictatorship. uh, And they placate the unhappy masses with an annual sporting event where competitors have to drive from the East Coast to the West Coast and get as many points as possible by hitting pedestrians. Um, Somehow, it's a lot dumber than it sounds. Uh, Each racer has their own gimmick and their own costume. It's a lot like wacky races, but super violent. Sylvester Stallone plays an Al Capone-themed racer with a Tommy gun glued to his bonnet. And, uh, you know, here's the thing, like, it's really, really naff, but the film does have a lot going on. Like, there's, even though it's all confined to the road, 
there is a subplot about this resistance movement that are interfering with the race. All these, like, the audience know them all to be, like, bloodthirsty rivals, but they all stop at the same pit stops that are, like, luxury hotels and they get massages next to each other. So it's kind of like Hunger Games in that, you know, the... The Hunger Games, the eponymous event, only took up a portion of the story, whereas it was more broadly about like how the, the role of the celebrity in a in an unjust society. Um, it is super schlocky. The politics does check out. Unfortunately, one of the racers is Nazi themed. Um, it's like it kind of makes sense, I guess, in the sense that. This is a like draconian dystopian society, so it makes sense that they would revere the Third Reich. It's not done because it's clever. It's done for really like schlocky, no budget B movie reasons. Um, pretty uncomfortable. Great big swastika on her crash helmet. But and this is a slight spoiler. I don't mind divulging. Pretty early on, she gets blown up. So you know, in a really goofy way as well. Like the Resistance sort of like pull a Roadrunner trick. So if you want to like watch the kind of film Rocky Horror is parodying, or if you just want to watch some goofy Nazi shithead drive off a cliff, then this is the film for you. Happy Pride. <laughs> sounds sounds delightful. Um, I've never heard of it. Is Death Race 2000 directed by Michael Winner? No, it's Paul Bartle. Ah. Yes. There was who, a remake. Eating, eating Raul, this is the most famous one probably. Yeah. And he was gay. He said that the reason that he worked in like independent, no-budget movies is because he believed that it offered him more opportunities for like artistic... Uh, invention than working in Hollywood. Um, it is like really, really dumb, but if you just like really weird sci-fi movies from the 70s, this is a pretty good one. Well, it's part of the Roger Corman sort of uh, canon, isn't it? So it's like he was producer. So he, like so many great directors worked with him, like Martin Scorsese, Coppola, mm -hmm. you know, like every big director basically had a, a shot making one of these Sherlock like, pictures. So yeah. Yeah, It's like a Scorsese good. film, really. In so many ways, it is. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, Jamie, what have you been watching? Well, <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't go into what I was trying to watch. I was hoping to see No Hard Feelings, the, the Jennifer Lawrence uh, film. But, but you know, I've been told that I'm making a mental of the hill. And he sides with the corporations. <laughs> That's fine. Fight uh, me, Jamie. I'm just saying that it is part of the rules. I'm not saying that it's like fun for you i'm just saying that that's not well like a i'm a rule breaker thing. right sometimes i don't bring my, my wallet with me okay okay but then you can't be mad at them for sticking to the rules that they told you about just well, to be clear jobs yeah. just to be clear <laughs> this doesn't count as not making a mountain out of a mole <laughs> anyway what you're currently doing is digging in the dry ass <laughs> well anyway all i'm saying is if you're going to uh 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 you know uh unlimited screening make sure to take your card because they've become little draconian Job worths. <laughs> you'll, never, you'll, nev you'll never guess what the rest of this story is about. Jesus, right? <laughs> but but what I did watch instead was Black Mirror. On uh, see, this is the problem. That this is you're, you're losing people to streamers cinemas by throwing them away <laughs> by asking them to bring the card that yeah. they have been issued. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> we can cut all this. If you want. But I've been watching Black Mirror. No, we won't be doing that. I've been watching Black Mirror. Uh, uh, but I've only watched the one episode so far. I watched Lock Henry, which is the Scottish one. Really excellent, I thought. Um, it's set in present day. It kind of explores our obsession with true crime docs. And it's a bit kind of unconventional for Black Mirror because it's not really about new technology. It's actually more about old technology. So it's like about camcorders and VHS. Um, just really f like creepy, but also like darkly funny. Like, uh, yeah, it kind of gets like Scottish sense of humour quite well. And it's like set in this kind of little town. 
uh, where everything's a bit weird. It's like a dead town where there's like a was a horrific serial killer like ten years ago, and it means that the the, the town has had like no tourists and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of smart, funny. It's got a really good twist in the tail. So I'd say a better. Um, one of the better uh, Black Mirror episodes, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. This is uh, this is the only one that I've seen of the new season as well. And I know that people generally talk about Black Mirror having had a dip in quality in recent seasons, which I think is kind of fair. I think that it sort of feels like they've run out of ideas or something like that. But the truth is, there were bad Black Mirror episodes from the first season. Like, some of them just don't hold up as well as the other ones. But this definitely is much more of a, like, instead of a TV story about this awful technology that might exist in the future and would just make everyone's lives worse. This is actually looking to something that we, inter- like a problematic fat relationship that we have with media right now. Yeah. And it's very like topical because you're right, true crime is kind of just like exploding and it's loads and loads of conversations happening about kind of the exploitation behind that. And obviously it's happening on Netflix who are making Black Mirror, who are the king of uh, like these horrible true crime uh, shows so yeah it's, it, it's, it's got things to say but it's also like a fun watch what if the real black mirror was a puddle the entire time <laughs> Annie what have, you, what have you got for me um, I also actually watched an episode of black mirror uh, which is the first ever episode of black mirror I've ever seen hmm. um, and it was part of this new season but it wasn't that one it was the space one with Aaron Paul and Josh ah. Hartnett uh, which I thought was like good but like not amazing um, I didn't really yeah, no, it was it was interesting and it was like definitely disturbing. Um, I don't think I don't quite get what the fuss is about yet, which I imagine just means it's not one of the better ones. I, I mean, to me, they always just feel like little short stories with a spick stick in the tail. They always have like a yeah. little twist. It's like you can usually guess the twist. It's like you know, I can they're kind of fun. Like I don't think they're the great TV show that they're made out to be, but yeah, I, I think they're kind of quite entertaining. Yeah, I've been told like the plot or kind of when my friends have like seen other ones um and they've told me about them that have felt like a little bit more like incisive about mm-hmm. like our relationship with technology whereas this one felt a little bit but then the person i was with actually made like a really interesting point about how it's about like digital identity so like yeah it was interesting but it wasn't the best thing i'd ever seen um i am generally in like a huge fucking rut like i haven't loved anything for what feels like ages i did really like spider verse but other than that I watched um, Goodbye Dragon Inn, which I was like, everyone adores this. Like everyone I follow has given it five stars. I adore it. Yeah, I just couldn't, I don't know, maybe I just like watched it in the wrong way. I just didn't really get it. Um, I don't know if it would have been something that's better in the cinema because it is just like quite slow and quiet. Mm. Um, And then I watched Morven Kala that I've never seen before. And I did like it. I did think it was really good. Um, But I think I watched it the week after it had shown at the BFI as part of their like film on film festival. And there had been like all this stuff on social media about the Q and A that um, Lynn Ramsey and Samantha Morton did like for that, where I think was it Samantha Morton really famously said that like um, after Sun had kind of ripped Morven Kala off and like Morven Kala was, oh, which way round is it? Which one's better? It's something like that's the hobnob and after Sun's the digestive or something <laughs> like that. And so I think it like, which the is most really hard. British, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stray to catch <laughs> ever. Right. I like hobnobs. I re- well, I no, mean, I think is it's that the meant digestive. to be the worst one? No, I think the digestive. They're both good. The di- I actually think digestive is better than hobnobs. So like whatever. But point being, I think it was like because obviously I adore After Sun. So I was like, if it's better than After Sun, this is going to be one of the best things I've ever seen. And then I didn't quite live up to that. So then I also just felt a bit like not meh in that it was really good, but I was just a bit like. 
Basically, you've come to me on this day, chat shit, and now this is what you've done. exactly. So I just haven't... I did really love Spider-Verse, actually, but that's been the only thing for, like, a really long time. So I think I'm just in a bit of a, like, just not really liking thing, which I don't really like. Do you guys ever get like that? If you you want a series, I recommend Extraordinary. I talked about this in what we were watching a couple episodes ago. It's the thing where it's a sitcom where everyone has a superpower, but it's, like, massively inconvenient. Sister... Michael from Dairy Girls is a mum who has power over technology, but because she's a mum, she doesn't know how technology works. It's like, and it's like got like a very good romance that like really kind of like swept me up, which I don't think often I get out of TV shows. That is how to win me over. And it's one of those things where I've been recommending it to all my friends and this always happens. Your friends don't listen to you when you recommend things, which no. I don't listen to my friends when they recommend me things. Yeah. Jamie recommended us a film on this podcast and we just dinged him. Remember yeah. you tried to, you tried to make us watch what watch did, that. yeah. Maybe what that actually is what will get me out of the rut. I Maybe mean, I, I didn't just—I didn't just try and re- recommend it. I tried to make you watch it on the podcast. Yeah, I, was I like sent you—I like sent you the link. <laughs> yeah, no, you did. You put it on the dock and everything. Again, yeah. I can only apologize. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I feel like series. I have been watching like some stuff. It's just like films. Do you ever get like yeah. that when you're just, just watch like, some old movies? Like, I mean, yeah. it's like that will that will revive you. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Peter, what have you been watching? Have you been watching something you can? That you can tell about Tanny. Yeah, I have. I don't know if you would like it. Okay, but on. hear me out. <laughs> right. Um, it kind of it very very loosely ties into something we're going to talk about later. So it's the Gallows Pole, which is a new series from Shane Meadows, who did mm. This Is England and oh, yeah. other things like that. It's like a three part series on the BBC. It's set in like industrial revolution times in like rural Yorkshire. It's about this kind of village. It's based on a true story about this village who kind of banded together to do this like coin clipping scheme. They would get a load of money and then cut bits off the money and then smelt it down and turn it into like extra. And they did it as this kind of like the whole community worked together on this big kind of like elaborate grift that went on for years and nearly tanked like the Georgian economy. Um, (laughs) But the weird thing is like, it's a very weird show because it's basically all about the build up. You never actually see them do like the grift in full effect. And the tone is incredibly strange because it's like, olden times but it's like watching an episode of this is england at times where like everyone is talking in this kind of like semi-improvised style um the first episode is a completely different tone to the following two episodes but it's very good because it's basically like a lot of the cast from this is england and other shane meadows projects having a go at like period drama and it's got kind of like psychedelic elements to it and some kind of like slightly folk horror elements to it uh and michael soka who's the lead guy is really great as this like he's uh basically a bad boy trying to do good who's come back from Birmingham uh having killed someone and stolen all of their like counterfeiting tools and is like I'm gonna put this to good use uh but there was a really funny thing that I read about I think it was in the evening standard Michael Soka was like interviewed before the series came out and one of the kind of framing devices of the show is they have these pagan like deities that appear to him in dreams and it's these guys with like big robes and their deer skull on and he said that when they when they filmed the series Shane Meadows would do the dialogue of the guys which would be like overdubbed later with like a megaphone and a karaoke machine <laughs> and he said that Shane Meadows at one point just started like razzing him up over the megaphone <laughs> and he was like Michael You've put on a bit of weight at the catering, haven't you, Michael? <laughs> Someone's not been doing their push-ups. And it's like, every time you hear about like a Shane Meadows project, it sounds like a weird cross between like a kind of artistic summer camp and some kind of weird attempt to just completely break people's minds. And they always fall somewhere in the middle. And the films are often like that as well. 
top stuff. But yeah, BBC iPlayer, it's three like hour-ish long episodes. It's very, very strange and probably not for everyone, but it is a very good watch. I've heard really good things about it. Yeah, I would give it a go. And like the cast are great and they have that chemistry that all of those like Shane, like Thomas Torgus and the woman who was in Downton Abbey, whose name I've forgotten. Sure. Uh, but yeah, really good cast, really fun time. I've not written anything else down. Maybe move on to the next bit. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> First thing to talk about proper this week is Asteroid City. Yes. Wes Anderson's fastidious fun bus is off to the desert. Um, it's a junior stargazing convention that brings a motley crew together from across the country before big events with Cap B, Cap E uh, occur and kind of change things about a bit. This film stars... Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Adrian Brody, Lee Schreiber, Hope Davis, Stephen Park, Rupert Friend, Maya Hawke, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, Jake Ryan, and Jeff, look at me, I'm very tall, Goldblum. <laughs> uh, Jamie and Lewis went and watched this in Glasgow yesterday, because you both live there. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit lightheaded from reading out the ridiculous <laughs> cast list of this fancy boy film. I mean, that's kind of like how it feels watching it, to be honest. Um, yeah, I've got a kind of slightly love-hate relationship with Wes Anderson because I completely admire him as a filmmaker. You know, he's, he's out there making what he wants to make. He's making these extremely experimental, in terms of the structure, in terms of the form, films. And they're kind of reaching a wide audience as well. You know, they're getting people excited. People are going to the cinema. I, you, know, I, you know, we should cherish that. But at the same time, I just hate the discourse around him and the culture, you know, it's like, uh, and it's just, it, it's just kind of really started to dominate indie cinema. You know, it feels like his films are always coming back to the cinema. I feel like, you know, if you go down the road to the cameo, it feels like he's got a residency there. It's like never, <laughs> he's never off. And it's like, people are obsessed by him. And I just think he, he takes up so much room. And now you've got the whole TikTok phenomenon where people are like recreating his films. So I don't know. I don't think... I, it's, it's not a kind of, I don't think there's that much interesting, it's hard to talk about his films because they've just become this kind of aesthetic object in the culture, um, which I think kind of doesn't do the, the films a, a great service and it also doesn't give like, you know, like I say, it takes away all attention from all the good stuff. Um, and, and, and just personally, I kind of not loved some of his more recent films. Like I didn't like... Um, the French Dispatch, I feel like he's, he, he, he has kind of, in recent times, went down a kind of little rabbit hole where he's so fastidious. The films have just become, it's like sort of watching somebody play with a diorama. It doesn't feel like a movie anymore. Um, and saying that, I did, I did feel that this was a return to form. I, I really I really felt like Asteroid City um, is a bit, is a more simple film. Well, I should say, it still has a um, kind of Russian doll structure and that um, it opens uh as a TV show presented by Brian Cranston um, about a play written by Ed Norton um, uh, with a cast uh, of people who are all like go to this, this kind of like, uh, you know, Lee Strasberg style um, actors trope, um, which features, you know, all the cast are in it. Um, and then it goes into the film. Um, so, so, so it has got this kind of really complex structure. Um, but the actual meat, meat of it, in Asteroid City is great. It looks fantastic. The set is, is amazing. It's set. It's it was shot in Spain, um, in Andalusia somewhere, and it's like 
it just looks really eerie. He's created this tiny little town with like three or four buildings, and it doesn't really leave there. So it's it's actually quite low on plot. So it's it's a, it's a bit like a hangout movie in a way. So we get to spend a lot of time with these characters, um, and I really enjoyed that because I feel like, like I say, the last few ones have been really madcap and whirlwind, and I feel like you're just rushing through set pieces. But here, there's a lot more chance for the characters to interact, and and part of the plot is something happens in this town. It's, it's the the plot is the. Everybody's taking their, these their kids to this kind of stargazing event where all these kind of genius brainiac kids are being given awards. Um, and something happens. I don't know if we should, should spoil it. Probably no, not. I want to see it. But, well, anyway, something happens that they have to stay there. They're, they're kind of under quarantine. So it's a bit like a pandemic film uh, almost. And that, but it forces everyone just to hang out. So you have all these relationships form. So like um, Jason Schwartzman uh, is a photographer. He's brought his brainiac kid. Uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson is a glamorous actress she's brought her kid and and they sort of just start hanging out to each, each, with each other and talking and he starts taking her picture and it's, a, it's it's the first anderson film in a while where i feel like we really spend time with characters t- interacting um you know all the kids as well have like really fun scenes where they're just playing games and like chatting and hanging out and you know uh tom hanks i think is great uh, as the, this kind of grandfather who has to come and like take care of uh, three of the kids who are like these like wild little girls who are like into being vampires and witches and stuff like that and so so it's just got like a lot of energy um and it's it gives you time for people to like just hang out together which which i really enjoyed which i think we haven't had from a wes anderson film in a long long time i completely agree yeah i think that like wes anderson's style and structural tricks are so rehearsed that I didn't really go in expecting to see anything like completely groundbreaking, but I'd noticed that there were a few names that he was working with on this one that he doesn't usually work with, so like Tom Hanks being one of them. And that was interesting because he has such a unique relationship with his actors, right? Is that he they have to like match the symmetry, they have to kind of like be at the same rhythm and energy as everyone around them. They have to uh yeah, yeah, they have to sort of like fit into this like very rigid thing that he's created. And I wondered like Tom Hanks always sort of sparkles. Like, you know, you could watch Tom Hanks by himself on an island with a volleyball for an entire film. Like, will he kind of, like, like fit well with an ensemble? But he totally does. And Steve Carell's in it. Steve Carell's great. He's kind of the eccentric proprietor of this absurd motel. And though he doesn't really tell any jokes, he provides a lot of, like, comedic energy. The motel has, uh, has like, vending machines, and he explains that they've got vending machines for milk, vending machines for meat, vending machines for real estate. He just sort of stands there. You can't get the sense that he's, like, about to just, like, burst out with some joke or something like that. Like, he really want, he's really excited to be there. Yeah. There's, um, a, there's a vending machine for martinis. So yeah. You can get, like, everybody's walking around with these tiny little martinis. It's, it's really cute. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Maya Hawke from Stranger Things is great. She's, like, a school teacher who's trying to keep her existential spiral under control while talking to her like very young pupils um but yeah like i would say that other than like some like yeah some new faces who are given like a really good backdrop a really pretty and exciting backdrop to just interact with each other there's nothing that particularly like unexpected that comes out of it we're still following writers and artists dysfunctional families uh weird romances nostalgia his quirky sort of nesting doll, like his framed narratives, um, the sort of same kind of symbolism. Uh, it's cool. It's it's pretty funky, but I think that kind of Wes Anderson now is so, it's such a regimented thing, you know, that, that I think that people aren't really going to be surprised. They'll be delighted. I was delighted, but I wasn't really surprised. Yeah, I don't know. If, I just felt every time it went back to the framing device, because what, what it does, it, it tells you what your scenes you're going to see. It's like very, very structured, and it'll say, this is act one, you know, scene 
three to five, you're going to see that chunk. And then it just plays out. And then it'll go back to the framing device. And I felt like every time it went back to the framing device, my heart sunk a little bit because the framing device is smart and clever. And it's got lots of references to like 50s and 60s film. You know, the like Adrian Brody is meant to be like uh, Marlon Brando. You know, he's walking around like looking like Marlon Brando out of... Um, you know, on the waterfront. And then uh, Scarlett Johansson characters meant to be Marilyn Monroe, but also a bit like uh, Kim Novak. And so it's got lots of references and you're sitting there like scratching your chin and thinking, oh yeah, I get that. I get I get the reference. But that's all it is. It's all just like an intellectual eye, like winking at the audience. Um, it doesn't really have any emotional payoff apart from one scene, again, which I don't want to spoil. It's got one amazing scene where a character who is not in the film, who got cut from the film, appears. And it's actually amazing. So it's, so this is a film where, where there's scene by scene, it is great, but it, it just sort of, he kind of falls over himself a little bit trying to show off mm. and, it, and it kind of like loses a bit of air. Um, but when it's in Asteroid City and when it's just characters talking and interacting, it's fantastic. And I just wish he would get back to that and just strip things back. You know, I'd love to see just that a play by Wes Anderson, you know? Yeah, he, he has this thing, right, of like, peeling back the curtain on how the creative process works. That's kind of the framing narrative in Budapest. That's kind of a point a point of the French dispatch. Um, and that's what's happening here. He's talking about the relationship between the creative process and the human spirit. And it's like, I don't really think that he does anything new with that. I think that these are the points that he's made in previous films, you know? Hmm. But that's really kind of the realm of the... the uh, non-diegetic world the overworld the tv world rather than the play the yeah. play itself is just really kind of peculiar and weird and touching in totally different ways i was wondering do you guys have a favorite because i feel like i still think the best wes anderson is like the early ones like rushmore for example is really good because there's less of that fancy uh you know nesting structure it's, it's just actually characters who i like in a small setting interact um, and it feels like there's like in a it feels like it's in a real place. It feels like you can breathe. It's not like you know the Grand Budapest Hotel, which it like feels like you're watching dolls being moved around a set. You know. Yeah, I haven't seen Rushmore, um, although I do really want to. My favorite of the ones I've seen, I think I maybe just haven't seen Rushmore and Steve Sisu. Mm. Maybe the two that I haven't. Um, I fucking love the Darjeeling Limited, which I know, like I think was kind of met with like quite mixed reception. Um, but I just think it's fucking gorgeous. Like, it's so... I think that kind of, like, story about, like, grief and healing is so gentle and cleverly done and is really, like, raw as well. I think he's really good at kind of talking about pain. And I think The Royal Tenenbaums, which is another one of his, like, really, really good ones, is, like, excellent at that. But when you were talking right now, it was like, yeah, I think one of the things I really like about The Darjeeling Limited is that it really is, like, three a kind of three-hander and obviously you have like the girl that's kind of also on the train and like Angelica Houston ends up being like the mother yeah, right yeah. and then like Bill Murray is like the guy that's running for this so you have like these little kind of like cameos in this sort of like all-star cast but it's not like ensemble ensemble in a way that I think since the Grand Budapest Hotel it just has been this like list and that is quite cool and I think the more he's traveled in this kind of more narratively like formalist kind of like postmodern like the layers of kind of like narrative um it does make sense to have these bigger casts and how it works and the french dispatch being structured like a magazine is interesting um but i would like to it's not even so much that i'm like that's bad it's just i'd like him to also play around with what he was doing before as well maybe yeah i would say this is also like jason Schwartzman is i would say is the center of it yeah. like it is an ensemble but he 
But has, he's has the been, first character in the first character, the last character. Out, yeah, kind so, of. he's lovely. So I, and I, again, he's in Rushmore. So maybe he's like one of my three because I actually mm. agree that I, I really like Dungeon Limited as well. And maybe he's a, a character because maybe he feels less. Um, maybe yeah, because he's been working with Wes Anderson for a while. Maybe he gets his, you know gets his style better and, and sort of yeah. can work with him a bit better. Maybe and know. not in that kind of the Bill Murray way, which I think is quite like stylized. Almost, yeah, super professional. Yeah. that he has. Yeah. Are you got a favorite? Um, I really like Moonrise Kingdom. I think oh, that yeah. that's like a good crossover point between the kind of like peak Wes Anderson, like later stuff, where it's like every fucker you've ever heard of <laughs> and every location. Like, he's basically taking all his lads on a big summer vacation and they're going to make a film to cover it for tax purposes. Like, Moonrise <laughs> Kingdom feels like mm-hmm. it sits between that era of his career and the kind of earlier stuff and it is a comparatively simple comparison to some of the other ones but it still has like a cast full of people that you know it yeah. does feel a little bit like yeah watching somebody with the world's fanciest toy box and the fact that Wes Anderson dresses like a giant posh child <laughs> doesn't really help me with thinking about that he's just always got all of his buttons done up he's a very yeah. very fancy lad yeah have you guys ever been to Dunfermline hospital no so um, I went with a friend once because he had to get an endoscopy. <laughs> so what a good friend him. you are. <laughs> I know, thank you. Um, and I went with him in case they had to put him under anesthetic or something. Um, and like when we got there, it's like this kind of pink and white striped building. And he was like, that's fucking Wes Anderson's hospital. Like it's so like dinky and charming and like just looks like candy striped, but it's like an NHS hospital. So I would recommend if ever you have. Is Wes Anderson shooting the, the yeah. endoscopy? If ever you have it's an very en- symmetrical. Yeah. <laughs> if ever you have an endoscopy and you want to get it moved to somewhere with a better aesthetic, yeah. then. The Wes Anderson hospital. Yeah, don't say this podcast doesn't help people make practical yeah. decisions. The Grand Dunfermline Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> So, Moonrise Kingdom is out on Friday. No, no. Moonrise Kingdom no. is has been out for a while. No, Moonrise Kingdom has been out for a while. It has been out for a while. Uh, Asteroid City is out on Friday. Asteroid City is out on Friday. We'll see which of those two takes I use. Um, and yeah, it's in UK cinemas everywhere. Go and see the fancy lads out in the desert having a lovely time. Moonrise Kingdom is available on streaming. Enjoy. Uh, I would say you probably like this because it's kind of similar to. Moonrise Kingdom in terms of its aesthetic, and it's got lots of like kids and stuff. Nice. Peter uh, famously hates children. Hey, film. that is untrue. It's got like it's not untrue. I don't hate children. It's got on like film. a Girl Scout. I'm sure. Oh no, I mean, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. hate children. I hate child actors. <laughs> capital C, capital A, child, a- child stars. They're the fucking worst. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about an art documentary. Okay, let's talk about an art documentary. So The Super 8 Years is a peek into the family archives of the Nobel-winning author Annie Arnaud. It's made up of like home video footage of holidays, trips, jaunts, and things of this nature. Um, all narrated by Arnaud herself. Uh, that's the film. It's one hour and two minutes long. God bless. Annie, what did you think? <laughs> um, so... I went into this really interested because I just kind of, I I would die for Annie Arnaud. I think she's really fucking cool. Happening was, um, so she's like a French author, is kind of like known for her work in like autofiction, won the Nobel Prize for Literature this previous round. um, And then has also kind of been in the conversation, I suppose, because of 
the film Happening, which was based on her memoir, which won the Venice Golden Lion two years ago. Um, and I fucking loved Happening. I thought it was like really important in terms of like abortion conversations and cinema and blah, blah, blah. So I really went into this being like, I am excited for this. I really like her. It is also an hour and two minutes long. So I was like ready to go. Um, and I think it is potentially very interesting um like you said it's kind of made up of like these old home videos that like she and her husband took of their various travels their children and then it's kind of like put together with like her narrative over it and I think it's very clearly aiming for this kind of like Agnes Varda kind of documentation of the everyday and that kind of being in itself like a political act and I think that does kind of succeed at times like her work has always been about like the politicization of the everyday and like the domestic and kind of gendered labor gendered experience of the world and I think there's something really interesting about the way that kind of reclaims the family home video which is I think quite like a familial and therefore quite like feminized domestic object and it kind of turns it into cinema and like traces these kind of narratives of female intimacy and interiority that is I think a really interesting project and idea um and in a way it kind of reminded me and maybe it's just like the association with happening but that kind of abortion scene in portrait of a lady on fire which I think Celine Siama had talked about is like the point was to show something that has never been shown in art because art has historically thought of it as something unimportant so these kind of like gaps of the female experience that we never see because they're just thought of as like not worthy of like artistic mediation and so I think it is like interesting in that way like what happens if we make some art out of something that is historically unartistic the thing is it is just kind of boring <laughs> ding there we go <laughs> unfortunately um and maybe that is just because i like i said i've been in the rut so maybe i'm just like not the person to be like enthusiastic about things right now um but it was just and i really like her and i am interested in her life but it just never really it was so easy to zone out of it didn't really, I think, like quite root it enough in her life and what we know of her as like a public and a literary figure. There were like a couple of times where she would say some quite interesting things about the writing process. There was this one line that was, what is it? I will write to avenge my people, which I was like, that's kind of fucking baller. Um, but other than that, it just, I don't know. I just didn't care. <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> I, I, I felt like, I think... Annie Arno is so interesting and I think that's where the interest comes from is that she's lived an interesting life but the means by which they've chosen like choosing to have your film compelled about absolutely nothing but your home videotapes uh, or your Super 8 films from the time period you're discussing kind of becomes a limitation I think um like if I were to compare it to a documentary we've talked about on the podcast before and one that I will constantly bring up Fire of Love had a much wider pool of archival footage of the crafts but still kind of broke it up with these quirky little animated sequences whereas this you know it's it's only 60 minutes long but nothing really alters the homogeneity of it um it's like it somehow manages to be even though it's quite short quite dense because we're kind of constrained to what we're seeing. Uh, you know, there are loads of bits where we're like, then we moved to this country. We lived in this town, on this street, in this year. This guy was in power. But of course, what we didn't know was that this guy was about to get into power in two years later. And it's like, it's quite rapid fire. It, it all happens in such a short span that I feel like I learned a lot more about communist Albania than I do about what Annie Arno has to say herself 
because like you've said, like the, the there's interesting concepts at play here, but I, I feel like they never really get verbalized, mm. um, which I think is maybe why I was also sort of phasing out a lot and it never really felt like that. You get a moment when you're watching a film and you you click, you kind of like land on the emotional resonance that it's, it's, it's giving out. Um, so I would say it was like interesting from a sort of travelogue standpoint, uh, but not really a moving story. It's very like woozy. It has just like an un, basically unbroken narration by Annie Arnaud and kind of sun dappled Super 8 footage of people just going on holiday. And it doesn't always make for the most engaging piece of cinema. Like Anahit was saying, I think it does the things you're talking about in terms of like reframing how you think about this kind of footage and like positioning it within the kind of biography of this person and them reclaiming uh, ownership of that biography. But it is also kind of boring and it is kind of just a collection of holiday footage. So like it's interesting for fans of like, Fans are kind of like film ephemera, I think, in terms of like, it's some interesting footage. And it'll be probably quite interesting for like Annie Erno stands sound off in the chat. <laughs> but like, I don't, yeah, I think that, and it is partly like a language barrier thing. Like, it's a French narration. So if you're not a fluent French speaker, then you're going to have to really concentrate. And then when you really concentrate, you're like, I really concentrated. But I speak French and I still thought it was boring. Well, well, there you go. That, that's yeah. confirmed. I guess I'm here right. to stick up for this film. I, yeah. I, I really like this. Um, I, well, part of it is like, I just think there's something really poignant about Super 8. Uh, it gives everything this kind of haunting quality. So as an aesthetic object, I just thought it was wonderful. I could watch this uh, all, all, forever. And then I just thought on top of that, you had this hypnotic voiceover from, I don't know, who I don't, don't really know anything about. I'd not read anything about, uh, you know, before this, film i didn't really know her biography but i thought it was really interesting to listen to her because it's interesting you said you th thought it was feminine because to me it's about a breakdown of a marriage this mm. film is like because everything's been filmed by her husband uh and she describes his filming as violent you know so so it, what happens is he's recording this kind of perfect nuclear family you know this bourgeois family um and 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 but what she says as soon as the camera turns on you don't know what to do you've got this kind of weird sort of space where you have to kind of perform you know and and what's interesting is you've she looks haunted she does not look happy in any of these pictures she's in these beautiful locations she's in chile she's in uh morocco but she's like talking about the 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 the, the violence of in these countries it's not like a, she's not enjoying herself and she's also talking about how she's newly bourgeois she like grew up working class and she feels a kind of weird guilt and an unease in these kind of settings and, and sort of travelling to these countries because it's the thing to do in this um, sort of lefty newspaper that they've read. So, so that, was, that was really interesting. And she's also saying she, she's not having fun because really she'd rather be writing. She, like throughout she's saying, like, you know, she's in this kind of beautiful Moroccan village, which is actually a fake village. It's a, a village been built for like uh, uh, travellers and there's no actual Moroccan people there apart from the people who are servants. Um, but she's saying, I don't want to be here. I want to be at home with my thoughts. You know, you know, my kids are having a great time. They're swimming, you know, they're having a great time, but I want to be gone. And you can see that on her face. It's actually quite sad, really. It's like, and it's, it's just before she became famous. So, that, so it's like, it's set over kind of 10 years and she's writing the first kind of books or she's at the start of writing the books will make her an international star. 
Um, so it's like a, a woman in transition who she's a you know she's a school uh, school teacher. She's coming home to watch the kids, um, and she has this kind of husband who it's, ne- it's never quite implied, but like it's she seems not happy. And as the film goes on, like she gets more success. It's it's like it, it's it's her kind of blossoming from this kind of housewife to a to a a writer and, and uh, so, so i so i thought i thought it was just the, the reading between the lines you know this this kind of these happy moments that should be happy that's kind of home footage um it's her looking back at herself and seeing someone she doesn't recognize and i thought it was really interesting i thought it was quite good at exploring the idea of the interior and the exterior you know so she's performing like being a happy holiday maker but she's saying at the time i was i was not engaged i was not present here i was like thinking of my novels um, and I thought that was like, quite an interesting and honest, um, just an honest thing to say, really. And I actually just liked her voiceover. I thought it was very unadorned. It was like very simple. Um, uh, and I, I kind of, yeah, I liked the way she just sort of was very honest about her life. So I, so I found that quite uh, like hypnotic, like I say. What I would say is I don't really know who this is for. Like it does feel like a film you would see at a festival. I'm surprised it's getting a... UK release, you know, it's such a short film. It's like nine, uh, sixty minutes. You know, what are cinemas going to do with it? It's quite hard to describe what it is because, like, like you say, it is just like home footage with this kind of. Um, it's not even a po- uh, poetic um, voiceover. That, like I say, it's quite unadorned and quite simple. Um, uh, but I, I, I found it quite moving actually, just watching it, and it's, it's, it's like the idea of you looking back at yourself, um, uh, and sort of seeing a different person and sort of. You know, and now she's in a different place, and it's like you know, I, I, I did, I did find the, the whole thing quite moving. And like I say, I think part of that is maybe the super eight. Um, but yeah, I, it kind of makes me want to go and read her stuff now. I think she's pretty cool. So yeah, I think she is really cool. So if you want to see some super eight footage of people's holidays with an unadorned voiceover, parentheses <laughs> positive or negative inflection, your choice. <laughs> then uh, super eight years is out in selected UK cinemas and it's out via Curzon so it'll be on their streaming platform fairly soon but it's out in cinemas on Friday so that is the Super 8 years and because we're recording this on the day before the longest day the midsummer and because it's coincidentally the 50th anniversary of The Wicker Man uh, we wanted to have a lovely fun chat about folk horror (laughs) everyone's favourite slightly odd incredibly foreboding and often slightly bloody but in a, done in a way that's a bit off-screen genre of films you can watch in the cinema or in your house so folk horror just table setting what are we all talking about let's get our agreed terms out let's all shout at each other and then talk about some films so i think the key elements of folk horror in terms of this discussion are you need this kind of pastoral setting that's like seemingly disconnected from modern times but always kind of framed through a modern lens you need an outsider character visiting a, like, not their community and in one way or another confronting their customs and what they do. Um, you sort of need the sense that the environment is in some way antagonistic, like you can't leave this place, the water's gone bad, the food's gone weird, your boat's been stolen, someone smashed your radio, there's a shark in a bag, etc., etc. Um, and one thing that does come up in a lot of these films I've been rereading a Mark Fisher book, you see, because I'm a fancy boy. Um, (laughs) This kind of eeriness, the sense that, like, there's often things there when there shouldn't be something, or there's nothing somewhere where there should probably be something. This idea that, like, the environment isn't quite 
right. And that's where a lot of the horror comes from. It doesn't come from someone like jumping out at you with a knife. It comes from you looking over a hill, expecting there to be something, and it's just empty. And then when you get closer, there is something. Once you had established that there wasn't supposed to be something, now there is. Now horror can occur. <laughs> horror can occur. And also, like, weirdly, loads of them have, like, um, mad psychedelic elements because a lot of this is, like, tied to 60s and 70s hippies and new age people and doing loads of drugs in a field. So that's folk horror. We've all had a think about a folk horror type film that we could talk about. I'm going to go to Jamie first because he just described it off mic as a proto Wicker Man. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd quite call it, but it's, it's from the 50s. He just described it <laughs> off mic as a quote proto Wicker Man. And I've got two witnesses, Jamie, as you were. I mean, it sometimes turns out I talk shit, Peter. What can I say? Have <laughs> oh, you not noticed that already? Anyway, this might be one of my favorite horrors. Um, it's by Jacques Tourneur from 1957, uh, Night of the Demon. Um, so it's about a scientist um, played by Dinah Andrews who, who's American. He, he arrives in England because one of his colleagues has just died. He's been found dead. Um, and his colleague was just about to expose this kind of satanic cult that he believes to be operating in the area. Um, and the colleague is convinced that the cult leader passed him a piece of paper which which had a kind of like... Uh, curse on it basically and he was cursed that a demon will come and eat him um, and Dan Andrews being this kind of American scientist walks in and says use silly Brits with your um, like pagan beliefs this is all rubbish you know he's very he, he's very sceptical about this whole thing and he goes and starts to investigate and he kind of meets all the people involved um, but soon and very slowly he starts to maybe think maybe black magic might be a so it's a film that's really interested in that kind of dialogue between like belief and scepticism, fantasy and reality, and the way uh, Dan Andrews um, he goes from the, being this kind of extremely confident um, that it's all a hoax, that it's all kind of just in this guy's head, to actually like starting to um, be believe that actually there could be something up, and it's just so subtly done that the, the the panic that starts to build in him when he thinks actually I might be cursed um, is, is actually very subtly done, but in, incredibly palpable um now the original cut of the film there was actually no monster on screen jack turner um wanted to make it very ambiguous as to whether the cult leader does have satanic powers um as in league with satan as does have a, a demon that he can like send on his enemies um but the producers did not uh, agree with jack turner they thought like, you know what this needs it needs a monster so so the producer did shoot a couple of scenes um where there is a kind of a or forced turner to sh uh, shoot a couple of scenes where there is an electoral demon. Now, if you ignore those scenes, it becomes a much richer film. Even with those scenes, it's still great. But if you ignore that those scenes, it's actually a really amazing film about that ambiguity of, um, you know, the, like, it do, does religion, where does religion and magic and science meet? It's, it's very interesting. Uh, it's like, you know, very eerie. The, the cult leader is fantastic. Uh, he's, he's like this very, he's a magician. He's a kid's musician. You know, he seems like the most... Um, you know, lovely avuncular guy, but he's there's something sinister about him, and it's like it's really unnerving. Um, and it's it's the, it, I guess that is actually the thing about folk horror. Quite often, they take it takes time at this beautiful time of year where you've got sun all year round. It's horror in the daylight, like that's part of it. Like it's like horror where there's nowhere to hide. You know, it's not like it doesn't have the shadows to like uh, scare you. So so that's 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 this character personified. This kind of lovely open 
uh, gregarious fellow who actually could be the devil or could be in league with the devil, you know. So that's that's I think why it's a kind of quintessential horror, uh, like folk horror film for me. And also, it's you know, it's got the idea of pagans and cults and religion and magic all mixing in. I think that's the thing is that um, I don't know if that came up on our little list of criteria, but that like I don't know. Strangely, like insular communities often generate this eeriness right what you were describing is eerie Mm -hmm. and i think that where that comes from is the idea that like everyone's in on something that you're not and that's why folk horror uses a lot of like faith or beliefs whether they're like neo-pagans or or some fictional uh, uh cult uh and depending on the folk horror you might get yourself like an actual scary monster that they manage to summon because they're they're in fact evil wizards or it's you know and yeah it's it's simply the the drive of of faith or at least a faith that you're you don't understand that that puts you in danger yeah and one of the things that these kind of films often do is they have a sort of like inbuilt genre thing that basically fancy big city thinking whether that's around like capitalism policing religion like the way that you're you're coming to this from the outside as a big city boy thinking that you know how everything works and actually it's about what happens when that's not right and you just keep digging yourself in more and more that's one of the main things about the wicker man for me is always that like edward woodward's policeman character just can't get his head around anything because he's just on a totally different wavelength from everyone else on this island and his like normal tactics and normal being like well of course well, what do you all think about Jesus? And we're like, we we don't care for Jesus. And he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, don't worry, I'm just going to do some classic like gumshoe detective work. And it's like, oh no, no one is telling me anything. And when they do tell me stuff, they're all just lying through their teeth. What do I do? Try the Jesus thing again. But I <laughs> didn't get much out of it the first time. Um, so yeah, they have this kind of thing of, it's about, it's about the city people going back to the country and realizing that actually they've lost something by being in this kind of like capitalist urban milieu. And when they go back to what they assume will be a kind of like backwater with uh, un, what you call it? kind of kind of like un like less developed, clever, smart people than them. They're like they get outsmarted because it's just a case of being differently like clever than a big mm. fancy boy in a policeman's hat. Uh, Anna, to move on from a big fancy boy in a policeman's hat, what <laughs> film did you want to talk about? So I want to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which I think is actually maybe the only M. Night Shyamalan film I've ever seen. The problem with his films is that the twists are so famous that then you just know the twists and then you're like, well, what's the point of seeing this film? And actually, I already knew the twist of this one before I saw it, um, which was really frustrating because I think it would have been very cool. Um But yeah, I I think it's really interesting what you were just saying, because I think, admittedly, I haven't seen a lot of folk horror because I don't, like, super love, like, horror films. They have to be quite particular. But if I think of this, if I think of Midsummer, which is probably the other, like, kind of major one that I've seen, I think what's really interesting about the genre is this sense that kind of, it is, like, the environment around you that is hostile, or it's this kind of, like, impending, like, modernity that is hostile and kind of within these films as a very like stripped back rural engagement with like the land and like these characters are placed in isolation away from society and almost as if the film kind of 
to begin with leads you to believe that this is some kind of like idyllic kind of return to the pastoral that maybe this is like you were saying that kind of move away from the big city slicker um but in both those films in the village as well it's really about how like these people are isolated within their communities and the kind of horror that comes from this kind of very insular like cultish kind of way of living um it's really hard to talk about this film particularly um without kind of revealing the M. Night Shyamalan kind of classic twist um that I think really brings to the fore the way that he's exploring like horror as this kind of human construction which is what I thought was really gorgeous about it but basically like the premise of it is that it's this kind of almost like not quite puritanical but like sort of puritanical like Amishy kind of like 18th 19th century like group of people that live in like these Pennsylvanian woodlands um it's this really small community and they've been told they can't go beyond the bounds of the forest because there are these like evil monsters that are there and it's this one woman Bryce Dallas Howard who is kind of like navigating kind of what happens if you like cross the boundary um and it's just like so atmospheric um and just so like it's just like a very sensory film like you really feel like the mud and the kind of yeah the kind of decay of the environment around you but like it's really interesting how that aesthetic is like undercut by actually it's the people that where the horror is kind of coming from which I thought was really interesting um I think it's also maybe my favorite score from any film ever I think it's James Horner um and it is fucking gorgeous there's this one track called the gravel road or something that I think is just like one of the most beautiful things that's ever been like put to a film um so yeah I really really like it but it's not really that scary I will say well this is the thing about a lot of these yeah a lot of this kind of filmmaking is more about creating attention and like acknowledging and then manipulating that tension that is about like actively scaring you mm. because it's about you know it's not they're not all like they're not jump scary saw type films for the most part you know you think of the wicker man and it is a very kind of like it's more of a mystery almost until it becomes more horrific and it only really becomes horrific from one perspective because spoilers when they put that guy in the wicker man he did kind of have it coming a cab, uh, <laughs> Lewis. What have you got? For oh no! Me? Why did you have it coming? Because he was at what? He was interfering, and he didn't. Was it? Was that, it's because he's a virgin. He gets murdered. Because <laughs> no, he's a cop. It's, it is, well, it's partly because he's a cop. Because at the end, they say that he was. He had come here as an emissary, like a kind of. He had come here on behalf of authority, and he'd come here with like the power of the law, and that's part of the reason that he was good they lured him there you f- i think you're forgetting the film <laughs> i am remembering the film correctly he, he goes there because all the kids are missing but they're not really that's the, the whole thing he's been lured there because he he's, didn't cause leave need- well enough alone <laughs> and now look at him lewis what have you got for me uh, so yeah you were talking about how these films tend to be sort of mysterious um i don't know if a slow pace is too mean to say but they do sort of tend to... They you know, reveal themselves over time. Yeah, absolutely. Because of their slow I think pace. that it can... In some instances, it's worse than others. I don't... There's certain things I don't like about Midsummer. Part of that is that it's just completely glacial. It just takes ages to get any, like, decent imagery out of that film. But kind of on the other end of the spectrum is Apostle, which came out in 2018. It's on Netflix. It's, uh, it's directed by Gareth Edwards, who did the Raid film series and most recently a series called Gangs of London. So it's, you know, Wicker Man adjacent folk horror, but it's kind of kick-ass. <laughs> like our, our, 
instead of our, our outsider being this maybe helpless, unwitting horror victim who has no idea what he's in for, um, who, he, you know, he doesn't get like lured in or anything like that. Our protagonist is, is kind of an action hero. He travels, it's the 19th century, and he travels to this Welsh island to rescue his sister from this strange fertility cult that Michael Sheen has founded. Um, he's like going undercover as, as one of the, the converts. So the scenes are all that, you know, very familiar, like nail biting. Is he going to get found out? Is he not? And, uh, yeah, like, not to spoil things, but, like, he does have a spear fight with the guards at one point, which I didn't, you know, there's nothing like that in Midsummer. Not the kind of thing you'd usually see from this genre. Um, and we were talking earlier about, like, how sometimes there is a monster, sometimes there isn't. In this, weirdly, there is actually a supernatural component. You get, like, these eerie figures hanging around in the background and a couple jump scares. But the supernatural element doesn't really factor in until the big explosive finale. So without trying to, like, you know... There, there's these subplots going on that kind of make up the meat of the film. You know, there's this power struggle between the founders of the cult. There's this couple of teenagers who are like star-crossed lovers who are like not really allowed to be together but want to run off. Um, and of course, you have this guy who's here trying to retrieve, to find and retrieve his sister. So it's there's a very human aspect to it. And as such, it doesn't really point the finger at nature worship or neo-paganism or godlessness, or any of the things that might get vilified tangentially through folk horror up until this point, it, it's like, you know, the horror comes from their torture devices, their interrogation scenes. The real horror is like the abuse of power dynamics related to faith. Like Annie was saying, like, the, the, the people are the bad guys here. The people, is, the, the people are the horror. Um, it's kind of like it factors in folk horror's relationship with the natural world, it is seen as kind of this, it, again, try not to spoil anything, but it's kind of explained to be this unwitting tool that's been exploited by the cull and they're using it to kind of, you know, write, like invoke people's faith and therefore have control over them. So a, a really interesting film that despite being a little bit, I guess, naffer in the sense that, you know, our character is this badass who like picks fights and, it's much more dynamic than any other folk horror. It still manages to kind of, I don't know, characterize cults and, and particularly the kinds of cults you see in folk horror. I mean, it sounds great. It's good. I recommend it. I mean, I would love to just, see, I mean, I'm, I was going to say, I would love to see a version of the Wicker Man where the guys goes around and start and fights people, but that is literally just the Neil LeBute Wicker Man <laughs> remake. <laughs> Not the bees. Step away from the bike. <laughs> I think we've covered folk horror. Yeah, I think good job, it. everybody. Okay, right. I think that's us for today. So thank you, Anahit. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Pierre. Uh, cheers to EHFM for the studio and the mic stand, which is like so close to my face. Like I, f- I was saying this to Annie before we started. I think I'm going a bit cross-eyed because <laughs> the mic is so close to my mouth. That's nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's a nice thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> we can hear you really well. Yeah. So we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> um, yeah, check the uh, check the show notes for social handles and things of this nature. I think I'm actually just really hungry as well. It's 20 past three and I haven't had any lunch yet. You haven't had any lunch? I haven't had any lunch. Have you, you it? had the thing in the Summerhill Cafe that's like the tahini and like feta whip toast? No, I haven't. You should do that. I'm off for some tahini and feta <laughs> and whipped feta toast. Uh, I don't know what the rest of you all have planned, <laughs> but that's me. So yeah, we will be back in two weeks time. Uh, tell your friends. Enjoy your midsummer. Don't go into any big wicker men. Goodbye.
Bye. Bye. Bye.